So, Sandy Joe, yes. we are continuing our conversation on church history. We We're going to get into this dude named Constantine who had like this like crazy close, but he had this crazy vision of this glowing cross and he decided to conquer his enemies in the symbol of the cross. So my question to you is, if you were a Roman emperor, which symbol would you conquer in? Oh, that's a good question. Maybe, maybe I'd use garlic and holy water because that's how you kill vampires. Crosses and garlic and holy water. Can we put crickets here? (laughs) Welcome to the Whatever This Thing Is podcast, everybody. Welcome to the Whatever This Thing Is podcast, everybody, a podcast about this thing called the church. My name is Chris, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm your other host, Sandy Joe, who never had the unfortunate reality to live in a place called Selma. Good one. In this episode, we are going to continue our journey through church history as we pick up from the baby steps of the church and move into the very uh, early eras of Christianity and empire. Hope you enjoy, everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are here again in Producer Sam's illustrious studio, picking up the history of the church story that we have been navigating for the last few episodes. A thousand uh, years. A thousand years. Or, yeah. So we're, we left off last time, uh, kind of the early birthing slash maturing steps of the church. Um, Little infant stages, infant toddler stages, stages. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pentecost, the whole tongues of fire and all that coming down. For and our Pentecostal friends, they'll love that. They'll yes, love that yes, inclusion, the tongues of fire. Well, what, is, what does that mean? What does what mean? The tongues, the tongues of, fire? of fire? Why would the Pentecostals be excited about Cause that? Because they just like that phrase. They just like tongues oh. and they like that focus on Pentecost. That's interesting. Yeah. So we're picking up the story here that is... We're, we're moving along where at this moment we've got kind of this grassroots movement on the fringes of society. Um, what, what are some, what are some of the key, key elements or key things that you would identify this stage as? For the early church at that point, early, I think yeah. the key elements are, they are gathering together and probably even way more than once a week. So for, for all of those who, whether they challenge the weekly gathering as too much or too little or whatever it might be, they were, according to Acts 2, they were, they were meeting daily. They were hanging out daily and selling all their possessions and in a, in a little bit of a commune, not communist, but commune type, <laughs> type society where they were just, they were whatever you needed, they would be able to provide it. And it was, you know, one of the Several of the hallmarks of their of the early church were miracles. Um, again, taking care of each other, meeting consistently together. The idea of food, which I just love and we love, and we think that's so very important. And all churches should have food constantly when they get together. Um, and they were the idea of community was really being lived out in that early church. And even for the next, you know, I think up through what, 60 or 70 years mm-hmm. after Jesus and beyond, but especially in those 30, 40, 50, 60 years after Jesus, that's all they knew. They were being persecuted at times. They were being persecuted by the Jews, then the Romans, and they were getting it from all sides. And there were moments of no persecution, and then they were being persecuted again. But it was it was one of the 
one of the ways in which they drew uh, persecution was used to kind of draw them together as well as to to remind them of why this was so significant. You weren't seeing people just converting to the faith just because they wanted wealth and fame and happiness um, or a get out of hell free card, as we would like define you're it today. Foreshadowing a bit here. I am, but I'm I'm <laughs> trying to make the very important com- comparison that when yeah. you became a follower of Jesus in the early church, you really wanted to become a follower of Jesus. It was not yeah. for anything that you were going to get materially out of out of that relationship. Right, it was a dangerous thing to to join. Um, that was a pretty good synopsis. It was like, a great in synopsis. Like two minutes, I, mean, I feel like there's. I ran to out of breath there. At, All right, thanks for joining point. us, everybody. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I was I, uh, as I've mentioned, reading the book of People's History of Christianity, um, by Diana Butler Bass. She she talks about this these early stages not being defined by really by um, beliefs at all. Cause they still, I mean, there's a few important yeah. things, you know, Jesus is Lord and right. the resurrection and things like that. But sure. the orthodoxy right. has not been, been defined established yet. or defined mm-hmm. yet. That's not but even a term that they would have understood. Things, right? yeah. But really some of the major things that define this. Um, so, and I'm, I'm bringing that, that idea because nowadays, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's more belief. Yes. That um, it's all belief. It's all belief, right? We we're it's focused like, on what you I, believe. Why should I be a Christian? Does that make sense? And you're termed a heretic much quicker. In fact, we'll get there. But yeah. you know, by the three hundreds after Constantine, the idea of heresies that mm-hmm. wasn't there uh, to an extent that we see it in the three hundreds and forward. And so, if you deviated from that belief system, you were termed a heretic. Um, I don't know if I should mention this, but I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. Rob Bell's, uh, Rob Bell came out with a, a movie, I think this year and it was the heretic. The heretic. Yeah. Now I haven't he didn't seen it. Come out with it. I, huh? He didn't come out with it. What do you mean? Just to be clear. There's some guy who thought he was interesting and wanted to do it. Oh, well, but somebody did like a bio. I just wanted to make sure you realize you were wrong on that. Of course. Um, And it like the term, they titled it The Heretic. I haven't seen it. And I have, you know, I Rob Bell doesn't need me defending him. But it's this idea that that we are very quick today and from the 300s on, I think, to define people as heretics, label them as heretics, especially if they deviate from what we think is right belief, which is orthodoxy. Right. And that's, I think that'll be another thing that we'll eventually do a whole episode on is this whole yeah. idea of, of having a safe place or actually the, the, the beauty and value of being able to have space to yes. wrestle with your faith, to right. wrestle with God. I mean, isn't that what Israel even the name means, right? To wrestle with right. God. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like we don't like to create space for people to wrestle with things, meaning Such question a, things and, and, and yeah. really, you know, ask those tough things. But, um, one, so that's not what defined the other church. What, and back to what Diana Butler Bass says, she's really one of the main things that, that would identify them was this idea of hospitality yeah. as a spiritual discipline. Right. And so we think of hospitality nowadays as well, really it's, it's kind of gone the way, like most other things, it's become an industry sure. now, right? So it's, it's Pinterest on how to decorate and right. do all these beautiful things to invite your closest friends over um, to enjoy a holiday party or right. whatever, whatever. And you, it's and three it's million unique. ways to decorate a mason jar, right? right? <laughs> but it's unique. It's something you maybe do once a year, as opposed to back then. It was yeah. it was your way of life. The ho- whole idea of 
really loving your neighbor and, you know, the great example of the Good Samaritan, and you're going out of your way to care for others, even those that you disagree with or those who maybe have wronged you or maybe those that don't like you. Um, Hebrews talks about, you know, entertaining angels or strangers, this yeah. idea of um, that you're constantly aware of of caring for others. That is definitely one of the marks of the early church. Right. So rather than di- defining their morality a ton based on things like strictly on like sexual ethics and, and, and the likes or, um, or politics or, or politics, or laws, right. right. They, they actually define that a lot more on this idea of welcoming the stranger, kind of Jesus main, you know, main teaching, um, of what, sum, sum yeah. it all up, you know, it's all about love God and love your neighbor as That's yourself. And, right. You know, the idea of you, you gave me a cup, you mm-hmm. gave me, you put a shirt on my back. Like, when did we do that? Well, when you did it for the least of these, that's right. when you did it for me. They took that very, very, very seriously. seriously. And I, and I wonder if part of the reason they did is because they really didn't have anything. I mean, this was a time of, of extreme poverty where you're being taxed at such a high rate where you're, you're protected because you're in, you're in Roman territory. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Rome was constantly bothering you, but you were taxed so taxed so highly it's it's like this indentured servitude idea. You can never pull yourself out of the system. And so you really are poor. When Jesus was feeding people, he was not just giving them a nice meal because it was a cool thing to do. They didn't have anything. They had no food. And so it it shows um, it it's really meeting needs. Right. It's meeting the very basic needs of people. And I think even today we live in such a, uh, those of us in America, but I think those of us in the Western world, we live in such a time of prosperity and wealth and materialistic, uh, material blessings. But there are people who absolutely need things. Right. And it's it's just not even something that we we think about in terms of that is part of the ethic of what it means to be a Christian. Right, as like a spiritual discipline. When, Absolutely. When you, if you were to ask somebody, hey, well, you know, name off some spiritual disciplines, it's instantly... It's all self-centered disciplines. Right, it's reading the Bible, yeah. spending time in prayer, right. maybe if you're really, really disciplined, fasting. fasting. And I'm just not that disciplined. <laughs> but it's, yeah, this, fasted this idea... I don't know how long. This I probably idea shouldn't hospitality, be that honest. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of hospitality is... Um, is seldomly mentioned right. as as a spiritual discipline um, that we engage in. That just to kind of wrap this recap up, I thought um, Diana Butler Bass again. She had a an interesting line in in her book that said, "Hospitality is the practice that keeps the church from becoming a club, a members only society." So thought that was interesting because that is but i'm just thinking of the members only jacket so i <laughs> i got really distracted i think producer sam would look good in a members only i jacket. think you would too you could rock it sam I yeah <gasps> he might have one pull it out okay, next that's time. gonna have to go up on our instagram <laughs> very soon so okay so you know we we go through these very early years again um like we mentioned grassroots movement fringes of society but it worked it's um is efficacious is that the correct term i don't know it's it sounds good it worked it, i like the word because it's more than two syllables sure but um yeah it, it's this thing that's actually working for people not not um and working for people not for not not attempting to appease gods or 
um, attempting to get something out of the gods, which is what you would do with sacrifices. Right. It's something that was really working for people. It was caring for people. And that is something that is, that is again, unique to Christianity as a religion. Um, you know, people like to use the phrase that Christianity is a relationship. It's not a religion. I understand what they mean, but technically that's not correct. It is a religion, and it's okay to say that. Are you sure? I promise. Why? It's, what is your reasoning for saying It's okay that a it is a religion, but that is not what makes the fact that we focus on a relationship in that religion is what is unique. And the fact that it is not meant to be just about us and the fact that we don't have to appease these gods or, um, uh, you know, attempt to get anything out of them because this God wants to bless us, wants to love us, wants to, does love us, wants to have a relationship with us. Mm -hmm. And it works. It works for the common man. That's, that's just not true in, in, really any other religion that I'm aware of. Aware. That is and you're unique. studying all other, uh, other religions right now, right? You I entered am. a master's program on... Getting a master's degree in history, but focusing on religious history, Islamic history, okay. and then Jewish history. Awesome. Yeah. Well, once you finish that, then we'll trust what you say. But for now, <laughs> I'm going to push back on your idea that Christianity is a religion only because I want to understand that better. Why, it, it, how would you define... what is? How would you define a religion? Like, what are the things... Oh, it, there's so many different definitions, and I've got, I've got uh, you know, about a thousand definitions, but in its basic essence... Mm -hmm. It is, it qualifies for that term, a religion. It is, it is a religion in its essence of believing in a divine being, believing in an afterlife, um, having some type of atonement process or sacrifice idea, okay. the idea that it develops, the religion develops morals and values for the people within it. It just simply is a religion. And, and here's the thing, again, it's okay. I, we just like, we yeah. want to be unique and we want to be like, no, 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 <laughs> we're a relationship. We believe with, with, uh, in a God who, who um, I don't know, loved us and came down to the earth to die for us, and I don't have to earn my salvation, and all of that's true, but it still is a religion, and I guarantee you, I can't ask them because they're all dead, but I guarantee you that every person in the early church understood that as well. They knew that it was a religion, yeah. and they thought it was still tied to the Jewish religion, as we as we too believe, right. but they, they were, were not seeing this as... As a new movement, they were saying, "Oh no, it's this a continuation is yeah, this of is the Judaism, fulfillment of the really. Jewish faith yeah. with the Messiah now here." And they struggled with that. Yeah, and so of course they would have seen it as religion. They they wouldn't yeah. have thought any different. Yeah, no, and I think if we were actually to spend a lot of time, my, my guess is that at the end of the day, we'd come to say, "Yeah, I actually think I agree with you." It's just that religion has become one of those terms, oh, yeah. kind of like evangelical. It's Absolutely. almost like it's gotten hijacked, and it doesn't and even like mean. Church. And church, yeah, right. like these things that don't necessarily mean what they once seemed to mean. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to um, well, get to behind the the terms and yeah. the meaning, we probably would land at. Let at me just throw one more thing out there, and sure. I, this is the English translation, so I don't know, I okay. don't know what that word is in Greek because I haven't looked it up. But James does say that this is religion that God our Father accepts okay. to yeah. to love the widow or to care for the widow and the orphan. Again, I don't know, um, I haven't looked up that word in the Greek to see if it still means the same thing and refers to other mm -hmm. religions at the time. But that's, again, that's the English translation and it uses that word religion. So I would imagine trusting our translators that they are using the word that uh, as it meant back then, that that was the same term that you used to describe this, this idea of a belief system in a higher being in the supernatural, uh, you know, all of those things that we listed. Yeah. Got it. So 
I, one other thing that you mentioned there is the and is this idea of um, really the early church being kind of this continuation of Judaism. Right. Now, it, um, it's funny because we all, I've been listening to um, N.T. Wright's new biography on the Apostle Paul, and I'm barely getting into it. But he, he kind okay. Of so how many books are you reading right now, like Chris? Like ten, probably. No, I think it's like twenty. I've, I've seen never the stack. finished a book in my I've life. I've only read the first three <laughs> chapters of a lot of books. Anyway, that says a lot. Yeah, I know. I'm, I don't know. I've got issues. I get it. Books got to be really good for me to finish it. Like really, really like good. Like some and, Daniel Steele novels or, or something. Or Dan Brown, yeah. maybe. But anyways, so he's talking about the Apostle Paul and he he, he comes to um, what a lot of um, evangelicals or not just evangelicals, Christians in general would, would call Paul's conversion moment. Yeah. I'm doing air quotes on right. the idea of conversion because um, he's, he's really pushing back against that term yeah. because it wouldn't have been um, understood as this Paul has now left Judaism right. and is converting to Christianity when he has this moment where um, where he's um, you know on his horse, gets knocked off his horse by a light and sees the face of Jesus and he's got this whole other idea. I got of corrected on, on that. There. There, he actually did, never says that he was on a horse. Okay, man. I know, but go. I got corrected on that. I was teaching a class, and somebody raised their hand and said, um, it never says that he was on a horse. So I'm just trying to... Did you actually look and check? I did. I Every they, different occurrence of the story? They were right. They were right. Wow. They, well, it is repeated three times, but yeah. we were only looking at Acts chapter 9. Okay, so. but did the other... Pretty sure they don't, but somebody this, this one of our really one of our five listeners we need can to stop actually the podcast clarify, right now and figure this out. Okay, anyway, look, look in Acts twenty two and then Acts twenty six, yeah. I think. So the story, just in understanding of like Paul, the early church. These are these are Jewish individuals who are now working out their Judaism right. with this Messiah. Right. Um, present this this idea of okay we're now living in a different age of Judaism so there wasn't really this like hey convert like cut off and, yes. and forget your Judaism and now become Christian it was it was really kind of understood as this flow of, yes. of the like you said the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to was supposed to be for the world that's Jesus fulfilling the old Old Testament right, right? And that's why you get the gospel writers and even Paul giving so much attention to what the Old Testament says about Jesus. Right. Really, the only conversion is for those who are Gentiles, non-Jewish, who've never, who've never converted to Judaism. When they convert from any type of pagan religion, so let's say a Roman Gentile, that would be a conversion experience. But right. Paul is Paul is not having to do a 180 on his faith. He's having to do a 180 on his understanding of God. And this is this is my one of my next. Is it books. a 180 or is it a addition to? I think it's a 180 it's a, on his belief about God oh, because he God. Okay. cannot. Uh, and I actually think I think I I don't I think we brought this up before. I think Paul was at Jesus's crucifixion. There's really? no there's no evidence of that other than the fact that his age and that he was studying under Gamaliel and that he would have been in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Why wouldn't he have been? Hmm. He and he's a Pharisee. He may have been even one of the ones who were asking for Jesus's death. Again, there's no evidence for it outside of the scriptures, and I don't even know if anybody's speculated on it. I'm sure people have. I'll ask N.T. right? Yeah, he'll probably know. He probably was there. Um, that maybe <laughs> he could, maybe, but it, it, 
I, I wonder, and because he is so, and because he never brings it up that I also wonder if he's dealing with, you know, shame or guilt yeah. from that. Yeah. But, you know, he cannot fathom and the Jewish people cannot fathom a God who, who was in kind of, you know, again, this kind of two person idea. And they really weren't even understanding the Holy Spirit as part of that Trinity at that point, but that God would become flesh. Flesh was mm-hmm. bad. Humans were so beneath God. Heaven was still a, a nebulous concept that they weren't fully understanding, be, pro- probably because they couldn't understand themselves reaching up to this heaven where they could spend eternity with him. They're, they couldn't fathom um, this idea of a man who would also be God, who would then die for the sins of humanity. And Paul is the one who talks about the this curse in Deuteronomy. It says, cursed is everyone, anyone who hangs on a tree. Right. Paul is the one who brings that up. So these are the things that would have been going through all of their minds. I think it's a 180 on his understanding of God. That he couldn't, he couldn't, he just couldn't grasp it. And hmm. he was going in such the wrong direction, attempting I, I, to preserve his faith, he is a warning to every single one of us who believe that we are so right in so many areas and we could be very wrong. He thought he was right. There's no way to go yeah. and kill people and drag them out of their homes just for a religious belief unless you really thought that you were correct or crazy. And there's, I don't think there's any evidence that he was crazy. Yeah. Maybe no, you're, slightly. But You're right. He's He's... He was all for violence in yeah. the name of the faith, and and uh, yeah, interesting. I'm I'm actually looking forward to finishing that book. So, um, cool. That's, that's a good. That's it. That's no a other, good, nice no other, recap right no there. No other commentary on. No, that's on all that. good. But all right. we we have a rest of the episode to I, get to. All right, go maybe ahead, there should be it. a music interview. You're spending right a lot here. of time recapping, so like, <laughs> let's move it along. Hey, everybody, we just wanted to take a moment to remind you we are still a new podcast and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us in iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. You could do that even right now as you're listening to the rest of this episode. And make sure to share us on all of your social media stuff so we can get people saved and money and all of that. I mean, wait, (laughs) no, wait, wrong, wrong place. Yeah, well. It really does help. It helps us to become discoverable on iTunes. Um, It does make a difference. So again, if you like this or if you just like us, we'll take the second one too. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Well, now we're ready to move on to um, some of the really formative years. I think we're going to hit on some important hinges right now in the history of the church as we move towards... um, well, we can talk a little bit about Constantine here and, and stuff like that. So we've we've mentioned that the the church goes through these um these years of of persecution, right? Like there's just these different waves of persecution, really depending on um which which Roman emperor was right, whether they were sane or in, not, right, whether they liked right. them or not. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about it um because you know I've. I've been a pastor and preaching, you always have to have a good illustration in your sermon. So as as I was reading this, I was actually thinking about this summer when we were uh, on a family vacation and we ended up going to the beach and all the kids, um, my youngest daughter, really her first time being old enough to even go play in the water, but they're all, you know, going to the beach and, you know, they do the, you do the whole thing where you see how long you can stand the waves. Right. And so, you know, small waves are coming Knocks the youngest one, the 
three-year-old down and she's over the beach now, never wants to go back. <laughs> but the, the older- doesn't surprise me Yeah, the older her. three are having fun, different waves coming, kind of knocking them back a little bit. They're trying to hold their ground in the in the sand, right? And then I see this massive swell starting to come. And there's a pretty no. good size yeah. waves this day. Like they're coming in and I did what any good dad would do is- Sit just, back let and, them, just let them just let them yeah sat back and formed it, yeah. a hypothesis right, sure, and then observed sure. what was going to happen to go rescue them right yeah, yeah yeah so the waves are getting bigger and bigger and then just this massive swell mm. comes in and the kids have no idea and it just <gasps> jacks them up like <laughs> my Swallows oldest them son up. you know it's like going in the washing machine tumbled <laughs> around he finally gets out of it comes up looks at me as though like how could you <laughs> let me <laughs> go into this dangerous thing. You realize so many parents are just yeah. judging you right now oh, as they're listening God, to this. <laughs> that's fine. I, not the first time. <laughs> so you but, lost one, right? You lost one in the... Yeah, but we have four, saying? so okay. I figure right. we still have plenty. You still got three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, actually, my uh, five-year-old at the time, he he got tumbled and oh. he thought it was great. He's like, sure. all right, let's go deeper. And he, this kid's crazy. He thinks he's going to go deeper, but that's kind of like what, what the um, early church yeah. is going through. There's getting these different, and then, and different then waves. Not, yeah. Yeah. Some of them a little bit, um, you know, just kind of making life yeah. a bit difficult, but well, some of them actually pummeling. Oh yeah. Right? And it's, it's just a really quick to touch on, you know, all those times it talks about persecution in the new Testament. James talks about it. Obviously revelation does. Jesus warns against persecution. They really are, referencing what either was going to take place or what was currently taking place. And it was, it, it persecution is a very significant theme in the New Testament scripture. And right. we see it in history that they were experiencing. And again, it wasn't all the time. And some people have, have made it bigger than it was, but there were times when it was a pummeling. They were getting arms you know and legs ripped off right, they were being getting beheaded there the 11 apostles 10 apostles who actually did die a martyr death okay. it was or thrown to the wild beast in the arena right like, i can't even describe yeah. on this podcast how bad it was because it will make me faint but <laughs> it was bad so right. it was yeah there was just these waves it, it would come and go so what okay when was the what's the last book or letter to be added to the New Testament at, at what time? Or that when it was written, the latest to be written would sure, be yeah, the latest Revelation. Be I think John was slightly before Revelation. Revelation is about 100 AD, they think. Okay. And so that would have been, you know, that's past Nero, but it 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 was enough where John is constantly referencing Rome. He's using Rome as an illustration for, hey, the, uh, you know, the bad guy, the Antichrist, he's going to come from Rome. So Rome was not their friend when right. he's writing, and, and he's using them as, as this illustration of it. Okay, cool. So we're, we're going through this about 300 years or so up to this point where there's, uh, there's this guy named Diocletian who is the emperor. He, um, he's, I think he's there. What did I check my notes? So he's the Roman emperor from 284 to 305. And this guy Diocletian, I don't even know if I'm saying his name I, right. It sounds right. But sure. yeah, it sounds good, right? Um, so Diocletian is is the emperor at this point in time. And he, he actually, from what I understand, is the first Roman emperor to actually voluntarily leave his position because he was ill. Very old, I think. Um, so he leaves his position and all of a sudden there's like this four-way battle, yeah. like a bunch vacuum, of different guys. Power vacuum. Right, yeah. who who, who want to take claim to the throne. And, so, and the Roman Empire at this time was the empire. It was the the biggest power. And so yeah. there's a reason why 
you want that power. It's like wanting to become president of the United States today. You want that power. You are the biggest in in all the world, essentially. Yeah. And so these four different powers, there's two of them who are, who are really... Two two of these guys who have much bigger armies, I guess, than than the other two, and so one of them is the guy that we know as Constantine, and then the other one was Maxentius. Sure. Maxentius, Maxent- sure. Max. I'm just gonna call him Max. Max. There you go. We'll call him Max. All right. And so these guys are all going to this this battle royale, right, to see who's going to become the emperor, become em- the, emperor. Uh, the emperor, the next emperor. Yeah. Right. And so Constantine has this like vision of this glowing cross in the sky, right? Yeah, and and it's this is where it becomes v- debatable. Does he actually see this vision, right. right? Or is he using this as a very very shrewd politician? Is he using this to somehow uh, claim a religion and see it as an opportunity to perhaps unite Christians and others to his cause. Um, it, it's historians today cannot make up their mind about whether it was real and whether he was a true Christian mm-hmm. or whether it was purely a political move. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I don't, I guess we'll never know. We will never, I mean, we might see him in heaven, I guess, or well, if you believe in that sort of thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so he sees this shining cross in the sky, right? And then right. He's, there's this motto, and let's see if I can get this right. It it's says, Latin, so nobody knows how it's pronounced. In hoc signo vinces. Sure. In hoc right. signo vinces. Sure. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. It means Nobody knows how to pronounce Latin, so you really can't get, get it wrong. So I feel like I nailed it then. There you go. All right, and which means, by this sign thou shalt conquer, Right. So Constantine adopts this motto. He and appropriates symbol. the cross, and that's an important word in religions. Appropriation. There, okay. that uh, religions appropriate symbols, signs, festivals, feasts from other religions. Christians did it with the pagan, uh, with the pagan holiday of Christmas, December twenty fifth. Uh, Islam does it with Christianity and Judaism. Judaism claims that Christianity did that with some of their festivals, Pentecost, okay. mm-hmm. Passover. It's this idea of taking um, taking something from another religion and using it as your own uh, religion or religious sign or religious thing. So Constantine appropriates the cross and it becomes, we know by the time you get to the Crusades in the uh, 11th and 12th and 13th century, the cross is the very thing on the soldiers' uniforms. Right. The Knights Templar have the cross on their on their. Uh, uniform. Uh, you, when you went to battle, when you signed up to go join the Crusades, you were said to take up the cross. So the mm. cross used to be this symbol of death and sacrifice and denying yourself and following the way of Jesus. And it now becomes this empire, sign of the empire, right. sign of a of a soldier for Christ type thing. All right. So yeah, that's thinking earlier in the years like just imagine the these early church people the people of the way yeah and this symbol of the cross i i at least in the very early years this wasn't like something that they would be flaunting around or no. making jewelry out no. of and putting on their are you saying everybody horses, who wears a right? cross is bad oh i mean i would never say that but <laughs> no but no it's i just, thought you're gonna say you would never wear a cross Oh, I probably did when I was little. I bet you did. Actually, I think I have a tattoo of one on my back, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, this just like you said, the appropriation of this yeah. cross, all of a sudden it's this this symbol of what we'll soon see as, as victory, as yes. Constantine, luckily for yes. the 
and this is what we'll get into. I, I don't know if it's luckily or not. I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but Constantine's actually friendly towards the Christians yes. where this guy, Max, would want to carry on the old way of of um, persecuting right. the Christians and, and the old way of, of Rome. Right. Um, so essentially in the battle... Constantine is victorious yeah. and they, he sees the cross he and the, sees the cross they and, defeat in that name they drown Max in the river yeah. and they all live happily ever right. after and, and and Constantine sees it as as a sign that that God Jesus helped him to win this right. battle yeah right okay so Constantine essentially or eventually becomes the emperor of Rome here after a little bit after this this victory and then in the year 313 we have this thing called the edict of milan right you're just shaking your head like i'm nodding i'm nodding Chris, my head you're right Good you're job. right man professor I, schreiber I, no so I, actually i feel more like a student right now <laughs> who's giving a verbal report to the professor like am i getting this you're right doing good. yeah you're yeah doing good. good get an a all right good so far a so far cool so the edict of milan in the year of 313 so it's up until now, again, we've probably said this more than enough times, but the church is this this marginal movement. Organic. Organic, on the fringes of society. And and things are about to take a drastic, drastic huge. change. Like this is a this huge This is why this hinge, is a hinge, right? right? This is this is the hinge point right. of, of Christianity. This is huge. This is when it becomes aligned with empire. Right. So Constantine would declare a conversion to Christianity. And again, like you said, the historians are, are kind of split on this right. and whether or not there was a true conversion, a true belief in, in this God, man, right. Jesus, um, Messiah idea, or if it was a just major political move sure. or something in between, maybe, yeah, he, maybe, a mixture maybe he of kind of wanted to become a Christian, but who's to say that he really understood what it was, right. but he certainly does change Christianity. Right. And so he, him being a self-professed Christian himself and the emperor would, um, put out this edict of Milan, which would declare Christianity to be the official state religion yes. of Rome. Right. right? Now, just like now, that is huge to yeah. to to say that that this and it was. I don't know the numbers by this time, but I think it was still very. I mean, it was spread out. They had gone into Africa and India and Europe, and um, you know, they'd gone to all these places. But it's not. It's not like they were getting these mass quote conversions. the The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, and then I think in Acts chapter four, it might list some numbers as well. But when during Paul's ministry, during the early church's ministry, the the numbers were very small. People were really having to again make this very serious decision: Do you want to possibly die if mm-hmm. you become a Christian, if you become a follower of Jesus? Or do you want to just keep living your pagan life? I mean, it was not, people weren't doing this in droves that, again, that I'm aware of. And I, I, I think we're still talking about, though it's spread out all over, it's still very small. And so when, when Constantine makes this the state religion, by that very declaration, it almost assumes then that everybody in that Roman Empire then is a Christian. It's right. kind of like in Great Britain today, the Anglican Church is the state church, right. and and Queen Elizabeth is said to be the head of the church in Great Britain. <laughs> and so, if you're in Great Britain, you're an Anglican, even if you, I mean, or a Christian by by the very fact that that's you know that not everybody is, of course, but you just kind of there's just almost this understanding that now you are somehow tied to this faith, even if you really aren't. Right. 
And so, so it's through this edict and through a, a series of other political moves that I, I think this is kind of where we see the birth, and I'll, I think maybe we can use birth here, yeah. of the institutional yes, church. I would agree. Right? Yeah. There's this this thing that becomes a, a institution with structure and things are different things are set up. Um, soon after the edict, Constantine brings together all the theologians and, and he demands them to come up with a, a common orthodoxy, right? right? This is even and, where the term orthodoxy or, comes in. And orthodoxy play, just means right belief uh, or correct. Actually, correct is a better term there. Correct. I think. Okay. Correct belief because there is an incorrect belief. That is the assumption. And yeah, you get from this, you get all the creeds, you get the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, um, you get all of the various theologies that we that we understand. It's also during this time. It's in that fourth century, so in those 300s, that we they established the canon of the Bible, where they decided what Which books... Which books made it. Yes. Yeah. So prior to that, uh, you've got you know, a lot of writings, not people were, people leaned towards some writings over the, than others. And that's what they used as the test. Which ones are the ones that people are using and reading and believe to be, to be the divinely inspired words of God. Mm -hmm. But it was during that, that period, that fourth century is a huge period for organizing, for tightening up the books, the beliefs, the structure. Um, and, and then obviously, as you'll talk about how it e then applies to even how you exist in the system right. now in the, in the Roman empire. Right. And so this is why we make the statement that this is a huge hinge because right. even to today, a lot of what we think of an experience, um, in this thing called the church, or at least the institutional aspect of it is, is kind of birthed and, yes. and 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 has, finds its roots in these in these times absolutely right? i would i would say that the catholic church today uh the way it is and why it is comes directly from this this 300 period in constantine the 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 hierarchy the the focus on beliefs now and and the catholic church isn't the only one but they're the best example they're the biggest they've got this very very structured hierarchy mm -hmm. very very structured beliefs um, and and then you've got the Orthodox Church, which is similar, but the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church, and that's a whole other probably podcast, but the Catholic Church has also shaped Christianity, both Protestant and all types of Christianity for the last, what, now 1,700 years since this time. Right. But they owe all of that to this. To Protestants this. moved away from that. Um, you've got people like the Coptic Christians in Egypt that kind what of moved that? away I've from that. I've never even heard Coptic Christians. Yeah, there's a ton of, but that's the thing. Like we don't, mm. the Nestorians is another one. <laughs> okay. We've got all of these. Just making things up. Yeah, yeah just making up <laughs> words. We've got all of these subgroups who didn't quite follow the main Catholic Church mm -hmm. and they were labeled by the church as heretical. This is where heresies became so important. So this this idea that if you don't believe this, you must be a heretic. Mm. If you don't believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man, if you believe that he was um, kind of had these two separate essences, uh, and I can't remember, I'm going to some some church historian is going to be beating his head hearing this because he knows the answer to this. But I, I can't remember what it is, but this idea that Jesus had two different essences as opposed to one essence, okay. fully God, fully man. But if you believe the other, 
you're a heretic and and you cannot you cannot be part of the faith and they would right. kick you out that i think is is a concern and i'm going to fast forward even to today that is something that has stayed with the church for the last 1700 years both protestant and catholic hmm. if you believe differently from this orthodoxy then you're a heretic. You can't possibly be part of the Christian faith. You can't possibly be a Christian anymore because you're not following this very structured and rigid belief system. Often, often in cases, even if you maybe don't believe it yet, but you're just wrestling with some of these right. ideas, right? Like, yeah. let me ask you some questions proof. here. Like, right. this doesn't seem to make yeah. sense. A lot of there's a lot of uh, churches that don't will not allow space it. for that. And the reason why, and this is something that I discovered, you know, the last six, seven years, what I believe the reason why is because of there's just this a genuine misunderstanding of what faith is and this mm. misunderstanding of what, of why belief, why they think belief is so important. Now, I believe that the, uh, the creeds, the, you know, understanding our theology is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily bad to say this is what we believe. It's, in my opinion, bad when we say you can no longer be part of us because right. you're either wrestling with it or you don't believe exactly like we do. That has been the way the church has, has the church has existed for the last 1700 years. And it is so incredibly destructive. Hmm. So this is, uh, and this is where we get this term Christendom. Yes. It's birthed out of this this time period, this moment, right? Yes. Where the world is kind of divided into two halves, yes. Christendom and heathendom. Like well, you believe what we believe or you don't and you're and again, this an enemy, is, right? This is directly, we see this 300 years later. 300 years later, you get this guy, well, less than 300 years, this guy, Muhammad, who develops a religion, hmm. this Islamic religion, and a century later. Wait, 300 years after this moment? After this so point, 600 it, it's yeah, 600. It's okay. not long, but 300 years later, as the Roman Empire is falling, um, the Islamic Empire takes over so quickly. It's so rapid, and it's because there was a vacuum. Roman Empire was falling. There was nobody else. The Islamic Empire, and that's what it's referred to as this empire, hmm. takes over everything. And they they have they develop this idea, this term called the Dar al Islam, and it just means the abode of Islam and it's referencing any space where the rulers are are Islamic not everybody in that empire was Islamic because they were far outnumbered in every one of these most of the places where they conquered mm -hmm. but the rulers were see if the rulers were Islamic then that was a a part of the Dar al-Islam mm -hmm. the Dar al-Hab or Harb the Dar al-Harb was considered uh, the the place where you could go to war. That was the place that, that you could still conquer because they hadn't signed an allegiance to the Islamic faith. Wow. That was where kind of even this idea of jihad, where you would go on this holy war, not necessarily to convert. There weren't all these forced conversions that is a misnomer and it's not fair to so them. They were just taking over they power. Were, they were conquering. But they were doing what every other empire was doing. They were doing what the Roman Empire did. They were doing what the Greek Empire did before them. They were doing what the Persian Empire did before them. They were doing what the Bab... They were just following empire. Mm -hmm. This idea, but what it becomes is empire. And empire cannot be synonymous with religion. So the Islamic Empire, especially in all of these areas where and and as it continues, you've got this this empire that has a religion as opposed to a religious 
empire. The only the only settlement or nation or empire that was truly a religious nation or religious empire would be Israel, right? In its hmm. in its early stages. Later on, it became an empire that had a religion as opposed to a religious empire. And I would say that happened under Solomon. Okay, yeah. Under Solomon, it's, well, this is my empire, and yeah, I'm also religious, as opposed to this mm-hmm. idea of having a religious... Would you say that because, was it Solomon who would start kind of building up yes. on the backs of he of created people, an empire. Like- I think that, that, I think that, that the idea that you can have a religious empire is really antithetical to the idea of a religion. You, the empire wants to tax you for, for everything with, and especially if you're religious or you're not religious, an empire may want you to have, may want you to convert to its religion, even if you really don't want to. So under the, the Islamic empire, for example, you had a lot of Christians, well, not a lot, but some Christians and Jews Mm -hmm. who would convert to Islam just so they can avoid the tax. If you were a Muslim, you didn't get taxed, but if you were a Mm non-Muslim, you got taxed. So why not convert this, this, and you see similarly, and, and you share maybe even right now the, that in under Constantine, if you wanted to hold a high position. Yeah. You had to be, you had to be Christian. That's, you had to be a Christian. that's exactly kind of where we were going here is that that's one of the, uh, the underlining underlying results, um, that would prove to have a major impact uh, on Christianity's, um, becoming the state religion is that, it becomes the only legitimate religion in the court. So things are, are judged based on, on this, this religion. And, and if you wanted to hold any high power um, within the empire, like you said, you had to profess this religion. You had to profess Jesus is Lord or something right. like, right? Whether or not you, be- whether or not that was really what you were committed to. Right. So just think about this for a moment is you're, you know, at, at this transition, like think, you know, 20 years before you're a part of this Jesus movement that you're, you're meeting in caves or behind locked doors because this profession of faith could get you killed. Right. Right. Suddenly this guy comes into power who, who's friendly towards you, um, but makes these significant changes that all of a sudden, if somebody wanted to hold a high office, now that becomes the prerequisite. Like they have to confess that in order to be in this position of power. Doesn't it remind you a little bit of American politics <laughs> well, and uh, our, our desire that all of our Oh yeah, all of our presidents need to confess conf- that they're Christians, but if they were ever to legislate upon like the Sermon on the Mount, they'd be impeached probably, right? Well, none of our presidents ever would. I th- well, maybe, maybe just a few, <laughs> but... But anyway, so this, this, this is this huge, huge, huge change. We, we keep saying that, but I don't think we can overemphasize the impact that this, um, moment that this man, Constantine and and his edict and and everything that he's doing and maybe, maybe he has good intentions. Like I could imagine Christians even, I, 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 there's probably a, a, a lot of Christians who are thinking, oh, this is this is the, I think they even called it the heavenly city, right? Yeah, like right, Rome right. was be, be this heavenly city. Right. Like I could imagine myself being there thinking like, oh, this is good. Yeah. This is a good and thing. And again, We're, doesn't that remind you of, of some of our past feelings towards this great nation that we live in? Isn't, isn't America the heavenly country? A Christian this, nation. This Christian yeah. nation. Yeah. I don't know that 
anything can be a Christian nation. That's kind of an oxymoron. That's the thing. And that's, that's what, that's really the essence of it. The idea of Christendom, the idea of a Christian empire or a Christian empire, uh, emperor, that is not possible. Empire does not, does not work with religion. You cannot force somebody to be religious or to, to have a faith. Anything that is forth is actually the opposite of what the essence of, especially the Christian faith, the Christian religion, it is the opposite of it. That Jesus was the opposite of empire. He had nothing, wanted nothing to do with empire. And anytime something turns into empire, it loses its connection to its religion. Again, an empire can have a religion, but it cannot be, in my opinion, a religious empire, mm. a truly, truly uh, religious empire. And and back to the idea that and with what, these- And what happens is the religion is the thing that gets- Lost, that gets watered right? down gets... and lost and and tied to to politics and tied to you're a Christian uh, because you want to become uh, serve in the Senate or serve in this high political office. And all you have to do is tell me that you're a Christian. Right. You don't have to actually believe it. What we call this profession of faith. Again, this conversion moment. See, do Raise we... your hand. Do I see any yes. hands? Yes. I see Producer that hand. Sam? I see that hand. Boom. You can continue to be our producer. <laughs> this come to Jesus moment. Well, but that profession of faith, we actually use that very phrase right. when we when we baptized people upon the profession of your faith. Yeah. Is that really their belief and or is that just something that they say that they believe and something that they've acknowledged but not necessarily truly truly committed to? Right, so this this thing called Christianity, and I part of me wants to think of it as like not the there there's there seems to be this undercurrent of of true we'll call it Christianity, but but this true following of Jesus that that continues on all throughout history, absolutely. But it's like these moments where there's almost this fake or facade, right. um, this this shadow of Christianity that, uh, or, or of the religion that's birthed. And that's, that seems to be what's happening here is all right. of a sudden there's this shadow that everybody identifies, starts yes. to look at the shadow as the real as thing. As the real thing. And as the undercurrent, as the shadow, right? And right. so Christianity moves. That's a great illustration. This, this shadow of yeah. Christianity, this thing becomes the focus yes. and it, it moves from it's being. It's the sham idea. And that right. is what the very essence of a sham religion. So what, what constant, and that would be what we would say religion is today. Again, that we our negative connotation of religion is what Constantine made it. And I'm going to guess that what he's doing is he's attempting to copy every other religion religion that's out there, the pagan mm-hmm. Roman religion, the Jewish religion, the Persian Zoroastrian religion, the, um, you know, the, the Greek religion. He's attempting to, to use the facade of religion and use that as a basis for right. empire. But that, as you said, that becomes seen as the religion itself which it isn't right. All right. of those things. And you've got a list of things that, that come as a result. All of those things reflect the shadow side, the, the false, the, the facade of, of the religion and not the true essence of this faith this following Jesus. Right. And so this shadow thing is the, this religion, this term Christianity is the thing you now have to leverage. Right. If you seek a position of power. So um, let me, as we're, as we wrap this up a bit, I want to, there's like these major outcomes that, um, Alan Hirsch in his book, the forgotten ways, he, um, 
he kind of gives a bunch of these bullet points that I thought were really interesting. And I, it might actually be from another guy's book. Uh, he might've quoted it, but I forgot. Anyways, let me, I'm going to go through some of these bullet points. You give the color commentary, but these are some of the major outcomes that we see from this Christendom shift that from this moment. All right. So the first thing that we, that we see is we see this movement of the church from the margins of society to the center, right? We've kind of already covered that. It becomes the, the main focus. It's the middle. The funny thing is we often hear that, um, hear people longing for those days again. Cause yes, now especially religion, in America, um, is is being pushed to the margins right. again, right? And there's this oh, oh we, we need to bring prayer back into schools. We long for the day we, where the pastor is the leader of the city, or, right, or something. You know? Right, and, right, right. Not that you know if it's the right guy and seven people to look to him. That's yeah, I don't know. We, we don't have time to get into that's that right a now. Whole <laughs> other topic. All right, so we've got the movement of the church from the margins of society to the center. Uh, next thing we have is the creation and progressive development of a Christian culture or civilization. And that really needs to be air quotes, Christian culture, right? right. So it's a, that shadow. It's the shadow. It's the facade. All right. Here's a big one. All of a sudden there's this assumption that all citizens, except for the Jews, were Christian by birth. Yeah, those poor Jews. They couldn't get away from, <sighs> I mean, again, this is, the. there is a long history of unfortunately Christian persecution against the Jews. So, um, and that starts right after Jesus's death. This starts once Christians get to power, basically. When they have power, then they turn their their angst, their anger upon the Jews who mm -hmm. committed deicide, the killing of a deity, which is just the stupidest term. I mean, how do you kill a god, right? I mean, we try to do it in our superhero movies, but it's 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 just it's just ridiculous. And so, of course, the Jews are now the outcasts and they become on the fringes of they become on the fringes of right. society continue that trend all the way up through as we know getting into the europe and, and holocaust yeah yeah so yeah just okay your son was born in rome you're a roman citizen and a christian you're a christian yeah. check the box you're going to heaven congratulations um okay sunday now becomes an official day of rest and obligatory church attendance with penalties for non-compliance. Kind of feels like, you know, when your parents would make you go to church and then spank <laughs> you when you didn't, or or, or uh, I don't know if they spanked you, but... Oh, well, no, I mean, I... You wanted to go to church? Don't try to be so holy. No, no, okay. no. I, I didn't always want to go to church, but <laughs> I didn't really have the option to not go. Was, <laughs> you either go to church with a smile on your face or go to church with, you know, a beat booty. Maybe. Yeah, beat down. But it, it's, <laughs> again, the idea that we can force people to be religious is, is been, it's been something that we've been trying to do forever and we still try to do today. And you just cannot. This is something that goes much deeper to try to force, really to try to force people to believe anything is, again, it it's violates free will. But why do you want to, to force them to be religious? But, but, Again, the parallel is even to today. We are attempting to force things into societies, mm. assuming that if we just prayed more in public or prayed more in schools, I'll use that as an example again, not to beat a dead horse, but that that would make our society much better. I actually had right. a student three or four years ago attempt to write a paper for a critical thinking class on the fact that society has gone downhill since we took prayer out of schools. And Did you how fail do you? Him? 
No, but I certainly <laughs> tried to redirect him to say, first of all, how can you prove that? You're going to need to write like a 50-page thesis. You can't write a five-page paper on that. But you, you've got to, how do you, how do you prove that? How can you actually prove? And, and who's to say that things have gotten better in this way, but worse in this way right. like how again do you measure that idea it's funny because this is this is like the very thing that you see jesus coming against is this whole like whitewashed tombs of like it doesn't yeah. like what do you mean we're gonna force people to say these prayers like, right like i really care about the tr- transformation within you right yeah. and forcing people to to pray that's that's not true transformation no. that's a You've, that's a, I, I, I'm afraid of what others are going to think, yes. or I desire a position of power. Yes. So I have to play right. this game, put on this facade where, Act and it, and it doesn't matter at all what's going on within no. me. Okay. So next thing, the definition of orthodoxy as the common belief shared by all, which was determined by powerful church leaders and supported by the state. Yeah. That, so, and again, that goes back to the idea of orthodoxy. So I, and I want to clarify that the idea that creeds and theology, I'm not saying that that's bad. Mm-hmm. I, I'm saying what becomes bad is when we say, if you don't believe what we have decided is right, then you're wrong and are a sinner and going to hell. That is where we have deviated from the essence of Christianity. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Again, heresies like quadrupled after this. Everybody was a heretic unless you believed these very specific things. Right. All right, next one is a pretty pretty big one, is the hierarchical ecclesiastical system, which if you don't know what I just said, basically the church leadership structure um, would be developed in a way that it, it actually matched the state hierarchy Absolutely. that was enforced, right? And, and again, you can see that very clearly in today's Catholic Church, the, this idea of hierarchy from the Pope uh, on down and the infallible Pope on down to the, the basic essence of priests. And, you know, we wonder why the whole priest abuse scandal has gone on and has not been mm. addressed. Well, part of it is because they don't, some don't want to, but because the system is so big, how do you begin to deal with such a systemic issue? It, it because the system is so big and anything that big, how does that function in an organic relational way, which is what Jesus originally had. Yeah. Another thing that's a result of this era is the construction of massive and ornate church buildings and the formation of huge congregations. So everyone thinks that Rick Warren started the mega church, (laughs) but no, Constantine. actually started way back in the 300s. Yeah. And it's like overnight. You see this historically, you know, before this you had, you know, maybe they were meeting in halls or again, underground or homes, but but these buildings that grew up overnight, these massive, beautiful buildings, and, you know, what is the parallel as far as even back then? Well, the massive, beautiful buildings that they used mm-hmm. for all of their their events in the this, you know, the Colosseum and other things, uh, their palaces. Well, that that matched then these ornate these ornate religious centers, right. and we see a similar example in history with Solomon, the massive temple that he built and the massive mm. palace for himself. Both of these reflecting this idea of empire. Yeah. This next one is one that you and I have talked about a lot um, in regards to what we see, one of the major issues in yeah. the church. And you, you hear it often called the 80, 20 rule yeah. of, you know, 20% of the people doing 80% of the work and, in church, and right. is there really true discipleship happening? But what happened, one of the results of this era was this generic distinction between Clergy and laity, yes. Which um, clergy you know, being the, the pastors and laity right. being non-pastors, non-pastor, and and relegating 
the la- the laity, the non the non professionals, yes, we'll call them, yes. to um, really a largely passive role. Yes. So essentially, let the professionals do the heavy lifting, and you just sit you back and, and observe, sit, fall and in we'll line. We'll teach, and we'll we'll give you the sacraments. And so, I I really am not against the Catholic Church, but it feels like I am. But like you go into mass today, and you go you go up to receive communion from the priest, and you right. kneel, and the priest lays the little wafer on your tongue, and then you take a sip out of this gross communal cup. That <laughs> Have they... you ever done it? No, but it I looks... Did. Oh I did it gosh. once because I went to a you, Catholic funeral. You did just because and... it was wine. That was it. You just wanted to drink wine. That well, was, no, I that mean, was I had reason. my own flask at the funeral, of course. <laughs> Who doesn't? But no, I just thought, as you know, this, is, you a litur- this is a liturgy that I've never experienced sure. and I want to experience. And, you know, they do this weird the thing waving with all of the, the smoke. Incense. Going yeah, on. it's yeah, pretty it was, cool. It was a cool experience, but... But this idea that you go to receive, it's not even where you go and you pick up your own bread and you pick up your own grape juice. It's you go up and he lays it on your tongue, this passive response. And this distinction between clergy and laity is so significant. It is something that we see today, this this elevation of the pastor and this this really devaluing of, of the congregant. They're only there just to serve the work of the church, that church, that local church, and the pastor. And but the pastor is really that important person who hears from God and speaks to you and gives you a word each week and you go yeah. live that out. Okay, how about this one? So obviously we know the church gets really wealthy, but also another result of this era is the imposition of obligatory tithes to yeah. fund the system. Now, this is not where the idea of tithing comes from. No. We know that that comes out of um, the Old Testament. As and, far back as Abraham, even right. prior to the Mosaic Law. Yeah, right. Um, I, some could even say is, you know, Cain and Abel, right? Sure. I mean, right. Absolutely. This whole idea. But anyways, the, um, this obligatory tithe of you have to give towards this institution to, to keep it, to fund it, to, right. to pay, to put more gold up or whatever. Right. Right. Is that it? Oh, I you thought you were, you were still going. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, th- I thought this would be a big one for you. <laughs> I was I was waiting until you're done. I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, but well. well, and again, I mean, that's not you, you see that with the Islamic Empire, with the with um, with the taxes that come along with that. But it's this forced idea. Well, and I. Uh, I don't know if I should say this other religion, but this is actually not an uncommon thing. In what? Uh, even, What's even, the other religion? Even today, I won't say it. Even okay. today, where they will do kind of, not forced, but they'll take it right out of your, your paycheck type thing, oh, okay. um, where there isn't a voluntary involvement in, in, and it wasn't just for the church members, everybody in the empire. Because right. you're a Christian, everybody in the empire then has to be taxed for the tithe. Interesting. Um, next one we kind of already mentioned, but the whole division of the globe into Christendom and heathendom and really the, the waging of war yes. in the name of, of Christ That's and the huge. church, right? That's huge. This us versus them mentality. Yes. Um, and the, the whole use of violence, which is your ne- next point, that yeah. is so opposite of of the original faith of who of who Jesus was. Now you see that in the Old Testament for a variety of different reasons, but to but to come back to it as being okay. And this wasn't a one-time thing. 
because you fast forward again a thousand years, less than a thousand years to the Crusades. And this was still very much a part of their thought their thought process. Yeah. It became okay. They they had to do these mental and theological gymnastics, and they did. Even famous theologians and and uh, people that we look to their writings, like Saint Bar- Bernard of Clairvaux, we look to their writings today, and they, we think, oh, what what amazing men of God who gives us just great theological works. They they believed in and and encouraged the Crusades and Holy War because they really believed that that was okay in order to win back this Holy Land. It's not something that stops. It's something that continues to the Spanish Inquisition and to the, the war between um, uh, Catholics and Protestants where people think it's okay to enact violence, to convert others, or to take back what they think is theirs. There is in no way uh, anything there that reflects Jesus. Hmm. There just isn't, and you you have to do a whole lot of uh, the, uh, logical leaps of or leaps of logic in order to get there to try and to make did. sense of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, if you look to Jesus, um, yeah, it's pretty much the exact opposite. It's the allow violence to exhaust all of its power on you right right um, rather than keeping the cycle of Absolutely. violence going you know rather than paying back violence for violence that's a great and, and phrase like did that. you it's, did you pull that from somebody which phrase the exo- allow violence to be exhausted on you you read that somewhere um out. i think i yeah. i think i read somewhere that it was the idea of of sin exhausted yeah. its power on jesus at the cross and right. kind of just so, took it. so you did kind of kind of make that up that was pretty good Slightly. so allowing <laughs> others violence to be exhausted the level on of you. how impressed you are is, <laughs> i, I almost it, felt you, good it, but it, now i feel like it's an insult <laughs> I'm just trying to prop up your ear. Yeah. So, okay. So all these, man, all these things that you really, we can still see leaking in and, and, um, affecting how we experience and operate as the, uh, institutional church of today, as we've mentioned all throughout the history of the church, there's, there has always been this kind of undercurrent or, or fringe, move of, of really this, this pure who, way who, of following uh, who Jesus. Who pure faith. Yeah, desire. Maybe who, not, no one who ever totally had it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's still but nobody it, who could say, hey, I've, I've got this thing figured out. Yeah. And, you know, once they do, that becomes empire almost, right. It, right? But there has been, and I think that's a, an important point, there has been from the very beginning these undercurrent movements, these movements that are attempting to to really connect with the, the pure faith and right. not not who are pushing against empire and pushing against Christendom. Christendom, it, it equals empire. Right. And it who are pushing back against that and just desire to live like Jesus and practice the way of Jesus and live out God's kingdom yeah. and his reality. And, and every once in a while, those things bubble up to the surface through. and kind of they bring in through. this idea of reform. Absolutely. And, and Protestant Reformation needed. is one, even right. the, the break with the Catholic Church, with the Orthodox I, Church. I, kind of think that we're actually at one of those points in history right now because I do too. I, I, I start it's because to you and I are pushing for it, right? You yeah, I pretty much feel like it's going to be all about us leading just, the way on this. Just, just kidding. Making it happen. <laughs> this conversation has been going on long before <laughs> we started talking about it, but yeah, there's this yeah, bubbling of, I you agree. know, there's this discontent with feeling like, you know, I just don't think we, we really have right. it in the right, in the, in the way that Jesus intended it, I guess. Um, 
a few quotes or things that I wrote down, maybe to kind of wrap this up to summarize where we're at in this, in this journey. This is um, American sociologist on religion. His name's Rodney Stark. Uh, he, he was quoted to say for far too long, historians have accepted the claim that the conversion of the emperor Constantine caused the triumph of Christianity. To the contrary, he destroyed its most attractive and dynamic aspects turning a high-intensity grassroots, grassroots movement into an arrogant institution controlled by an elite who often managed to be both brutal and lax. And then Diana Butler Bass, um, who I've talked about multiple times, but in her book of People's History of Christianity, um, in this, she kind of closes this, this era, this chapter in her book, by saying, by the end of Constantine's reign, Christianity had been completely transformed. The paradoxical nature of Christian identity dissolved. The very paradox that had fueled the practices of devotion and ethics that made the faith both distinctive and compelling. So all that's been dissolved. And she goes on to state that um, the Christian paradox was lost and the original vision of Christianity as a way of life yielded to faith as a prerequisite for worldly comfort and success. And she even quotes another contemporary writer, Verna Dozier, who's referred to this period as the third fall, mm. a fall as detrimental as the original fall and Israel's insistence on a king. Wow. And both of those, I would say, have to do with, again, exerting our will, our empire above God's empire. In the garden, our will, our desire, our kingdom over God's, and then the desire for a king our will, our kingdom, our empire over God's. And so that is really, that is the, the refrain. That is the theme that, that our desire for, for our own kingdom to establish our own, whatever it is Mm -hmm. to make a name for ourselves is, is where we all go wrong from, from pastors to whomever they may be, to presidents, to the average person on the street. That's, that's it. That's where we go wrong. Yeah. Well, I think that covers enough for this era. Next time we'll uh, we'll be moving into medieval Christianity. Probably get into Pretty the Catholic evil. Church Pretty and evil. stuff like In that, that. Medieval period. Yeah. So it'll be good. Join us next time on the Whatever This Thing Is podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Music for the show is provided by Wolf. If you like what you've heard, follow us on social media and share this podcast with your friends. If you didn't like it, or you had a question, comment, concern regarding this week's topic, please email us at whateverthisthingispodcast at gmail.com. Promotional consideration brought to you by The Mustard Market. The Mustard Market is family owned and operated in Fullerton, California on Harbor Boulevard. Come experience retail therapy with quality products at great prices. The Mustard Market. Reinventing Thrift Resale. The Whatever This Thing Is podcast is produced by Samuel Parker Smith.